Chapter One of The World Set Free by H. G. Wells. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich. June 2009, Alexandria, Virginia. The World Set Free by H. G. Wells. Section 5. Frederick Barnes Vanderjaar is one of those autobiographical novels that were popular throughout the third and fourth decades of the twentieth century. It was published in 1970, and one must understand Vanderjaar rather in a spiritual and intellectual than in a literal sense. It is indeed an elusive title, carrying the world back to the Wilhelm Meister of Gotha, a century and a half earlier. Its author, Frederick Barnet, gives a minute and curious history of his life and ideas between his nineteenth and his twenty-third birthdays. He was neither a very original nor a very brilliant man, but he had a trick of circumstantial writing and though no authentic portrait was to survive for the information of posterity, he betrays by a score of casual phrases that he was short, sturdy, inclined to be plump, with a rather blobby face, and full, rather projecting blue eyes. He belonged until the financial debacle of 1956 to the class of fairly prosperous people. He was a student in London, he aeroplaned to Italy and then had a pedestrian tour from Genoa to Rome, crossed in the air to Greece and Egypt, and came back over the Balkans and Germany. His family fortunes, which were largely invested in bank shares, coal mines, and house property, were destroyed. Reduced to penury, he sought to earn a living. He suffered great hardship, and was then caught up by the war and had a year of soldiering, first as an officer in the English infantry, and then in the army of pacification. His book tells all these things so simply, and at the same time so explicitly, that it remains, as it were, an eye by which future generations may have at least one man's vision of the years of the great change. And he was, he tells us, a modern state man, by instinct, from the beginning. He breathed in these ideas in the classrooms and laboratories of the Carnegie Foundation School that rose, a long and delicately beautiful façade, along the south bank of the Thames, opposite the ancient dignity of Somerset House. Such thought was interwoven with the very fabric of that pioneer school in the educational renaissance in England, after the customary exchange years in Heidelberg and Paris, he went into the classical school of London University, the older so-called classical education of the British pedagogues, probably the most paralyzing, ineffective, and foolish routine that ever wasted human life, had already been swept out of this great institution in favor of modern methods, and he learned Greek and Latin as well as he had learned German, Spanish, and French, so that he wrote and spoke them freely, 
and use them with an unconscious ease in his study of the foundation civilizations of the European system to which they were key. This change was still so recent that he mentions an encounter in Rome with an Oxford don who spoke Latin with a Wiltshire accent and manifest discomfort, wrote Greek letters with his tongue out, and seemed to think a Greek sentence a charm when it was a quotation and an impropriety when it wasn't. Barnet saw the last days of the coal steam engines upon the English railways and the gradual cleansing of the London atmosphere as the smoke-creating sea-coal fires gave place to electric heating. The building of laboratories at Kensington was still in progress, and he took part in the students' riots that delayed the removal of the Albert Memorial. He carried a banner with We Like Funny Statuary on one side, and on the other, Seats and canopies for statues, why should our great departed stand in the rain? He learnt that the rather athletic aviation of those days at the university grounds at Sydenham, and he was fined for flying over the new prison for political libelers at Wormwood Scrubs, in a manner calculated to exhilarate the prisoners while at exercise. That was the time of the attempted suppression of any criticism of the public judicature, and the place was crowded with journalists who had ventured to call attention to the dementia of Chief Justice Abrahams. Barnet was not a very good aviator. He confesses he was always a little afraid of his machine. There was excellent reason for every one to be afraid of those clumsy early types, and he never attempted steep descents or very high flying. He also, he records, owned one of those oil-driven motor bicycles whose clumsy complexity and extravagant filthiness still astonished the visitors to the Museum of Machinery at South Kensington. He mentions running over a dog and complains of the ruinous price of spatchcocks in Surrey. Spatchcocks, it seems, was a slang term for crushed hens. He passed the examinations necessary to reduce his military service to a minimum, and his want of any special scientific or technical qualification, and a certain precocious corpulence that handicapped his aviation, indicated the infantry of the line as his sphere of training. That was the most generalized form of soldiering. The development of the theory of war had been for some decades but little assisted by any practical experience. What fighting had occurred in recent years had been fighting in minor or uncivilized states, with peasant or barbaric soldiers, and with but a small equipment of modern contrivances, and the great powers of the world were content for the most part to maintain armies that sustained in their broader organization the traditions of the European wars of thirty and forty years before. There was the infantry arm to which Barnet belonged, and which was supposed to fight on foot with a rifle and be the main portion of the army. There were cavalry forces, horse soldiers, having a ratio to the infantry that had been determined by the experiences of the Franco-German War in 1871. There is also artillery, 
and for some unexplained reason much of this was still drawn by horses, though there were also in all the European armies a small number of motor-guns with wheels so constructed that they could go over broken ground. In addition there were large developments of the engineering arm, concerned with motor transport, motor-bicycle scouting, aviation, and the like. No first-class intelligence had been sought to specialize in and work out the problem of warfare with the new appliances and under modern conditions, but a succession of able jurists, Lord Haldane, Chief Justice Briggs, and that very able King's Counsel, Philbrick, had reconstructed the army frequently and thoroughly, and placed it at last, with the adoption of national service, upon a footing that would have seemed very imposing to the public of 1900. At any moment the British Empire could now put a million and a quarter of arguable soldiers upon the board of wealth politic. The traditions of Japan and the Central European armies were more princely and less forensic. The Chinese still refused resolutely to become a military power, and maintained a small standing army upon the American model that was said, so far as it went, to be highly efficient. And Russia, secured by a stringent administration against internal criticism, had scarcely altered the design of a uniform or the organization of a battery since the opening decades of the century. Barnet's opinion of his military training was manifestly a poor one, his modern state ideas disposed him to regard it as a bore, and his common sense condemned it as useless. Moreover, his habit of body made him peculiarly sensitive to the fatigues and hardships of service. For three days in succession we turned out before dawn and, for no earthly reason, without breakfast, he relates. I suppose that it is to show us that when the day comes, the first thing will be to get us thoroughly uncomfortable and rotten. Then we proceed to Kriegspiel, according to the mysterious ideas of those in authority over us. On the last day we spent three hours under a hot, if early, sun, getting over eight miles of country to a point we could have reached in a motor omnibus in nine minutes and a half. I did it the last day in that and then we made a massed attack upon entrenchments that could have shot us all about three times over, if only the umpires had let them. Then came a little bayonet exercise, but I doubt if I am sufficiently a barbarian to stick this long knife into anything living. Anyhow, in this battle I shouldn't have had a chance, assuming that by some miracle I hadn't been shot three times over. I was far too hot and blown when I got up to the entrenchments, even to lift my beastly rifle. It was those others would have begun the sticking. For a time we were watched by two hostile airplanes. Then our own came up and asked them not to, and, the practice of aerial warfare still being unknown, they very politely desisted and went away and did dives and circles of the most charming description over the fox hills. All Barnet's accounts of his military training were written in the same half-contemptuous, half-protesting tone. 
he was of opinion that his chances of participating in any real warfare were very slight, and that, if after all he should participate, it was bound to be so entirely different from these peace maneuvers that his only course as a rational man would be to keep as observantly out of danger as he could until he had learnt the tricks and possibilities of the new conditions. He states this quite frankly. Never was a man more free from sham heroics. Section 6 Barnet welcomed the appearance of the atomic engine with the zest of masculine youth in all fresh machinery, and it is evident that for some time he failed to connect the rush of wonderful new possibilities with the financial troubles of his family. I knew my father was worried, he admits. That cast the smallest of shadows upon his delighted departure for Italy and Greece and Egypt with three congenial companions in one of the new atomic models. They flew over the Channel Isles and Touraine, he mentions, and circled about Mont Blanc. These new helicopters, we found, he notes, had abolished all the danger and strain of sudden drops to which the old-time airplanes were liable. And then he went on by way of Pisa, Paestrum, Girgenti, and Athens, to visit the pyramids by moonlight, flying thither from Cairo, and follow the Nile up to Khartoum. Even by later standards, it must have been a very gleeful holiday for a young man, and it made the tragedy of his next experiences all the darker. A week after his return, his father, who was a widower, announced himself ruined, and committed suicide by means of an unscheduled opiate. At one blow Barnet found himself flung out of the possessing, spending, enjoying class to which he belonged, penniless and with no calling by which he could earn a living. He tried teaching and some journalism, but in a little while he found himself on the underside of a world in which he had always reckoned to live in the sunshine. For innumerable men such an experience has meant mental and spiritual destruction, but Barnet, in spite of his bodily gravitation towards comfort, showed himself, when put to the test, of the more valiant modern quality. He was saturated with the creative stoicism of the heroic times that were already dawning, and he took his difficulties and discomforts stoutly as his appointed material, and turned them to expression. Indeed, in his book he thanks fortune for them. I might have lived and died, he says, in that neat fool's paradise of secure lavishness above there. I might never have realized the gathering wrath and sorrow of the ousted and exasperated masses. In the days of my own prosperity, things had seemed to me to be very well arranged. Now from his new point of view, he was able to find they were not arranged at all, that government was a compromise of aggressions and powers and lassitudes, and a law a convention between interests, and that the poor and the weak, though they had many negligent masters, had few friends. I had thought things were looked after, he wrote. It was with a kind of amazement that I tramped the roads and starved, and found that no one in particular cared. 
he was turned out of his lodging in a backward part of London. It was with difficulty I persuaded my landlady. She was a needy widow, poor soul, and I was already in her debt, to keep an old box for me in which I had locked a few letters, keepsakes, and the like. She lived in great fear of the public health and morality inspectors, because she was sometimes too poor to pay the customary tip to them, but at last she consented to put it in a dark, tiled place under the stairs, and then I went forth into the world, to seek first the luck of a meal and then shelter. He wandered down into the thronging, gayer parts of London, in which a year or so ago he had been numbered among the spenders. London, under the visible smoke law, by which any production of visible smoke by which any production of visible smoke, with or without excuse, was punishable by a fine, had already ceased to be the sombre, smoke-darkened city of the Victorian time. It had been, and indeed was, constantly being rebuilt, and its main streets were already beginning to take on those characteristics that distinguished them throughout the latter half of the twentieth century. The insanitary horse, and the plebeian bicycle had been banished from the roadway, which was now of a resilient, glass-like surface, spotlessly clean, and the foot-passenger was restricted to a narrow vestige of the ancient footpath on either side of the track, and forbidden at the risk of a fine, if he survived, to cross the roadway. People descended from their automobiles upon this pavement and went through the lower shops to the lifts and stairs, to the new ways for pedestrians, the rows, that ran along the front of the houses at the level of the first story, and, being joined by frequent bridges, gave the newer parts of London a curiously Venetian appearance. In some streets there were upper and even third-story rows. For most of the day and all night the shop windows were lit by electric light, and many establishments had made, as it were, canals of public footpaths through their premises in order to increase their window space. Barnet made his way along the night scene rather apprehensively, since the police had power to challenge and demand the labor card of any indigent-looking person, and if the record failed to show he was in employment, dismiss him to the traffic pavement below. But there was still enough of his former gentility about Barnet's appearance and bearing, to protect him from this. The police, too, had other things to think of that night, and he was permitted to reach the galleries about Leicester Square, that great focus of London life and pleasure. He gives a vivid description of the scene that evening. In the center was a garden raised on arches lit by festoons of light, and connected with the rose by eight graceful bridges, beneath which hum the interlacing streams of motor traffic, pulsating as the current alternated between east and west and north and south. Above rose great frontages of intricate rather than beautiful reinforced porcelain, studded with lights, barred by bold illuminated advertisements and glowing with reflections. There were the two historical music halls of this place, the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre, 
in which the municipal players revolved perpetually through the cycle of Shakespeare's plays, and four other great houses of refreshment and entertainment whose pinnacles streamed up into the blue obscurity of the night. The south side of the square was in dark contrast to the others. It was still being rebuilt, and a lattice of steel bars surmounted by the frozen gestures of monstrous cranes rose over the excavated sites of vanished Victorian buildings. This framework attracted Barnet's attention for a time, to the exclusion of other interests. It was absolutely still. It had a dead rigidity, a stricken inaction. No one was at work upon it, and all its machinery was quiet. But the constructor's globes of vacuum light filled its every interstice with a quivering green moonshine, and showed alert but motionless, soldier sentinels. He asked a passing stroller, and was told that the men had struck that day against the use of an atomic riveter that would have doubled the individual efficiency, and halved the number of steel workers. "'Shouldn't wonder if they didn't get chucking bombs,' said Barney's informant hovered for a moment, and then went on his way to the Alhambra Music Hall. Barnet became aware of an excitement in the newspaper kiosks at all the corners of the square. Something very sensational had been flashed upon the transparencies. Forgetting for a moment his penniless condition, he made his way over a bridge to buy a paper, for in those days the papers, which were printed upon sheets of metallic foil, were sold at determinate points by specifically licensed purveyors. Half over, he stopped short at a change in the traffic below, and was astonished to see that the police signals were restricting vehicles to the half-roadway. When presently he got within sight of the transparencies that had replaced the placards of Victorian times, he read of the great march of the unemployed that was already in progress through the West End, and so without expenditure he was able to understand what was coming. He watched, and his book describes this procession which the police had considered it unwise to prevent, and which had been spontaneously organized in imitation of the unemployed processions of earlier times. He had expected a mob, but there was a kind of sullen discipline about the procession when at last it arrived. What seemed for a time an unending column of men marched wearily, marched with a kind of implacable futility, along the roadway underneath him. He was, he says, moved to join them, but instead he remained watching. They were a dingy, shabby, ineffective-looking multitude, for the most part incapable of anything but obsolete and superseded types of labor. They bore a few banners with the time-honored inscription, Work, not charity. But otherwise, their ranks were unadorned. They were not singing. They were not even talking. There was nothing truculent nor aggressive in their bearing. They had no definite objective. They were just marching and showing themselves in the more prosperous parts of London. They were a sample of that great mass of unskilled cheap labor, 
which the now still cheaper mechanical powers had superseded forevermore. They were being scrapped, as horses had been scrapped. Barnet leaned over the parapet watching them, his mind quickened by his own precarious condition. For a time, he says, he felt nothing but despair at the sight. What should be done? What could be done for this gathering surplus of humanity? They were so manifestly useless, and incapable, and pitiful. What were they asking for? They had been overtaken by unexpected things. Nobody had foreseen. It flashed suddenly into his mind just what the multitudinous shambling enigma below meant. It was an appeal against the unexpected, an appeal to those others who, more fortunate, seemed wiser and more powerful, for something, for intelligence. This mute mass, weary-footed, rank following rank, protested its persuasion that some of these others must have foreseen these dislocations, that anyhow they ought to have foreseen and arranged. That was what this crowd of wreckage was feeling and seeking so dumbly to assert. Things came to me like the turning on of a light in a darkened room, he says. These men were praying to their fellow creatures as once they prayed to God. The last thing that men will realize about anything is that it is inanimate. They had transferred their animation to mankind. They still believed there was intelligence somewhere, even if it was careless or malignant. It had only to be aroused, to be conscience-stricken, to be moved to exertion. And I saw, too, that as yet there was no such intelligence. The world waits for intelligence. That intelligence has still to be made. That will for good and order has still to be gathered together, out of scraps of impulse and wandering seeds of benevolence, and whatever is fine and creative in our souls, into a common purpose. It's still something to come. It is characteristic of the widening thought of the time that this not very heroical young man who, in any previous age, might well have been altogether occupied with the problem of his own individual necessities, should be able to stand there and generalize about the needs of the race. But upon all the stresses and conflicts of that chaotic time, there was already dawning the light of a new era. The spirit of humanity was escaping. Even then it was escaping from its extreme imprisonment in individuals, salvation from the bitter intensities of self, which had been a conscious religious end for thousands of years, which men had sought in mortifications, in the wilderness, in meditation, and by innumerable strange paths, was coming at last with the effect of naturalness into the talk of men, into the books they read, into their unconscious gestures, into their newspapers and daily purposes and everyday acts. The broad horizons, the magic possibilities that the spirit of the seeker had revealed to them, were charming them out of those ancient and instinctive preoccupations from which the very threat of hell and torment had failed to drive them. And this young man, homeless and without provision, 
even for the immediate hours, in the presence of social disorganization, distress, and perplexity, in a blazing wilderness of thoughtless pleasure that blotted out the stars, could think as he tells us he thought. I saw life plain, he wrote. I saw the gigantic task before us, and the very splendor of its intricate and immeasurable difficulty filled me with exultation. I saw that we have still to discover government, that we have still to discover education, which is a necessary reciprocal of government, and that all this, in which my own little speck of life was so manifestly overwhelmed, this and its yesterday in Greece and Rome and Egypt were nothing. The mere first dust-swirls of the beginning, the movements of dim murmurings of a sleeper who will presently be awake. Section 7 And then the story tells, with an engaging simplicity, of his descent from this ecstatic vision of reality. Presently I found myself again, and I was beginning to feel cold and a little hungry. He bethought himself of the John Burns relief offices which stood upon the Thames embankment. He made his way through the galleries of the booksellers and the National Gallery, which had been open continuously day and night to all decently dressed people now for more than twelve years, and across the rose gardens of Trafalgar Square, and so by the Hotel Colonnade to the embankment. He had long known of these admirable offices, which had swept the last beggars and match-sellers and all the casual indigent from the London streets, and he believed that he would, as a matter of course, be able to procure a ticket for food and a night's lodgings, and some indication of possible employment. But he had not reckoned upon the new labor troubles, and when he got to the embankment, he found the offices hopelessly congested and besieged by a large and rather unruly crowd. He hovered for a time on the outskirts of the waiting multitude, perplexed and dismayed, and then he became aware of a movement, a purposive trickling away of people, up through the arches of the great buildings that had arisen when all the railway stations were removed to the south side of the river, and so to the covered ways of the strand. And here, in the open glare of midnight, he found unemployed men begging, and not only begging, but begging with astonishing assurance, from the people who were emerging from the small theatres and other such places of entertainment which abounded in that thoroughfare. This was an altogether unexampled thing. There had been no begging in London streets for a quarter of a century. But that night the police were evidently unwilling or unable to cope with the destitute who were invading those well-kept quarters of the town. They had become stonily blind to anything but manifest disorder. Barnet walked through the crowd, unable to bring himself to ask. Indeed his bearing must have been more valiant than his circumstances, for twice he says that he was begged from. Near the Trafalgar Square Gardens, a girl with reddened cheeks and blackened eyebrows, who was walking alone, spoke to him with peculiar friendliness. "'I'm starving,' he said to her abruptly. 
Oh, poor dear, she said, and with the impulsive generosity of her kind, glanced round and slipped a silver piece into his hand. It was a gift that, in spite of the precedent of De Quincey, might under the repressive social legislation of those times have brought Barnet within reach of the prison lash. But he took it, he confesses, and thanked her as well as he was able, and went off very gladly to get food. Section 8. A day or so later, and again his freedom to go as he pleased upon the roads may be taken as a mark of increasing social disorganization and police embarrassment. He wandered out into the open country. He speaks of the roads of that plutocratic age as being fenced with barbaric wire against unpropertied people, of the high-walled gardens and trespass warnings that kept him to the dusty narrowness of the public ways. In the air, happy rich people were flying, heedless of the misfortunes about them, as he himself had been flying two years ago, and along the road swept the new traffic, light and swift and wonderful. One was rarely out of earshot of its whistles and gongs and siren cries, even in the field paths or over the open downs. The officials of the labor exchanges were everywhere overworked and infuriated. The casual wards were so crowded that the surplus wanderers slept in ranks under sheds or in the open air, and since giving to wayfarers had been made a punishable offense, there was no longer friendship or help for a man from the rare foot-passenger or the wayside cottage. I wasn't angry said Barnet. I saw an immense selfishness, a monstrous disregard for anything but pleasure and possession in all those people above us, but I saw how inevitable that was, how certainly if the richest had changed places with the poorest, that things would have been the same. What else can happen when men use science and every new thing that science gives, and all their available intelligence and energy to manufacture wealth and appliances, and leave government and education to the rustling traditions of hundreds of years ago. Those traditions come from the Dark Ages, when there was really not enough for everyone, when life was a fierce struggle that might be masked but could not be escaped. Of course this famine-grabbing, this fierce dispossession of others, must follow from such a disharmony between material and training. Of course the rich were vulgar and the poor grew savage, and every added power that came to men made the rich richer, and the poor less necessary and less free. The men I met in the casual wards and the relief offices were all smoldering for revolt, talking of justice and injustice and revenge. I saw no hope in that talk, nor in anything but patience. But he did not mean a passive patience. He meant that the method of social reconstruction was still a riddle, that no effectual rearrangement was possible until this riddle in all its tangled aspects was solved. I tried to talk to those discontented men, he wrote, but it was hard for them to see things as I saw them. 
When I talked of patience and the larger scheme, they answered, But then we shall all be dead. And I could not make them see what is so simple to my own mind, that that did not affect the question. Men who think in lifetimes are of no use to statementship. He does not seem to have seen a newspaper during those wanderings. In a chance sight of the transparency of a kiosk in the marketplace at Bishop's Dortford, announcing a grave international situation, did not excite him very much. There had been so many grave international situations in recent years. This time it was talk of the Central European powers suddenly attacking the Slav Confederacy, with France and England going to the help of the Slavs. But the next night he found a tolerable meal awaiting the vagrants in the casual ward, and learnt from the workhouse master that all serviceable trained men were to be sent back on the morrow to their mobilization centers. The country was on the eve of war. He was to go back through London to Surrey. His first feeling, he records, was one of extreme relief that his days of hopeless battering at the underside of civilization were at an end. Here was something definite to do, something definitely provided for, but his relief was greatly modified when he found that the mobilization arrangements had been made so hastily and carelessly that for nearly thirty-six hours at the improvised depot at Epsom he got nothing either to eat or drink but a cup of cold water. The depot was absolutely unprovisioned, and no one was free to leave it. End of chapter 1